Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're, dis- we're discussing Tavi, Amara, and others from the novel The Furies of Calderon by Jim Butcher. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Brandon Ushio. Welcome back, Brandon. Thanks for having me back. So glad to have you on. And this is actually a topic that you had asked us to discuss, and I was not terribly familiar with it before. Um, the Furies of Calderon is the first book in a series that is called the Codex Alera, and there are six books total in that series. And um, as I became a little bit more familiar with it, I realized this is the kind of series I would probably get into if I just discovered it on my own. So I am pleased <laughs> uh, that you suggested it. Um, but that is how I came to it, is that you asked if we could talk about it on the podcast. But Brendan, how did you discover this book? So the way that I discovered it, it, it was my siblings and I were all really nerdy, right? And so Sunday dinner, we were sitting around the table talking back when we had Sunday dinners. Um, the but we were sitting around the table talking about different books, and and I had mentioned how something was a was a great concept but terrible execution, and another sibling argued that uh, if it was a great concept, the execution wouldn't have mattered. And my sister said, actually. Let me tell you about this story that came apart came came about as part of a bet between Jim Butcher and another author, and I can't remember who the other author was. And so we were we were talking about it, and that's basically what it, uh, how I came to this. My sister told me the story essentially came to, came out of a bet, and Jim Butcher liked it enough that he that he said, "Hey, uh, how about you win the bet, but I get to publish the story." And uh, so that's how I came to this one. Uh, just learning about the interesting way that it was created. Uh, but it was a, it, it's okay. I have to, I, and the way you told, said that I asked to present this, this is not one of those books that I'm like, this is one of the great books of Canon. Uh, this is one of those fun popcorn novels. And I feel like I've done that a lot with you lately, but I also felt like when we were talking about what could, what could I bring to the show? I was like, what's a book that nobody else is going to talk about on protagonist. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, this one's just weird enough that I, I think we could do, I think we, I could bring it and Joe could actually make it sound intelligent. So I was like, Let, let's do Furies of Calderon. Uh, and a- I asked you to bring it up. So that's, that's how I came to it was Sunday dinner talking to nerdy people and talking to ner- nerdy people is usually the best way to find nerdy books. So you mentioned that there was a bet. What exactly was the bet that led to Jim but- Butcher writing this, this novel? So it basically boiled down to what I had mentioned, uh, concept versus execution, which is better. And the, so the bet was that you couldn't take two stupid ideas, mash them up and get a good book out of it. And Jim Butcher said, no, you can take any idea, no matter how stupid. And if you write it well, it's going to be a good book. And so the author that Jim Butcher was betting, was betting against said, okay, take the concept of the lost Roman Legion, which has done a billion has been done a billion times. And many times it's very terrible and take the concept of Pokemon, which I take a little offense at of being stupid, (laughs) a stupid idea, but it's, I can see why the concept is like, this is a dumb kid's show. And so take those two mash them up. That's completely ridiculous. You're not going to get a good story out of it. And Jim butcher said, challenge accepted. And he, and he started writing the book. And like I said, he 
finished the first one and said, oh, that's, that's actually really good. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to do something with this. So if you read, if you read the book or listen to the book, you will notice little hints to Pokemon scattered around. There's a, there's a fury named Gyarados. That's a giant mountain. Uh, and it's like, Hey, there's a Pokemon named Gyarados. Now it's spelled completely different, but when you, but when you sound it out or when you listen to the audio recording, it's Gyarados. Right. Uh, and it's not as simple as just taking those two ideas. That's just the launching off point. So like the, the Pokemon become uh, the Furies that are the Furies of Calderon, but they're not like little magical creatures. They become kind of like elemental forces that have a little bit of personality to them, but can be uh, directed or wielded by uh, people who who have relationships with them. Right. That's... Yeah. Right. And especially the characters that we focus on in this first book, uh, for the most part, can call upon their Furies and uh and basically say come here and help me now which is pretty much what ash does when he says pikachu i choose you right uh but it, but you know don't don't imagine that it's little little creatures that can generate electricity or whatever that are that are hopping around um in this but but once you know that that's the origin point you can definitely see that building block as part of um you know the the origin for this narrative that that is present in the furies of calderon um a little bit of trivia about this. Uh, this is, as I noted, is the first book in the series, and it was published in 2003. And the sixth and thus far final book in the series was published in 2009. So he's putting out a book a year. And I just want to note, at the same time, he was also putting out a book a year in the Dresden Files series. And that is a separate uh, series of novels that Jim Butcher writes that now has 16 novels. And both of these series um, have been on the New York Times bestseller list. And I was a little surprised to like realize how uh like i knew jim butcher had a lot of books out i just didn't realize they were all in the last 20 years like like it's only in this 20 year span that he's put out so many books yeah he's um, a pretty young guy i would say he's probably i i don't know i've met him one time he's younger than 50 though it was, would be my guess so uh, looks like he is 48 years old i, I have huh. his wikipedia page up huh. um, there we go here. There we go. I would say uh, everyone that I have ever talked to about Jim Butcher has recommended to me to read the Dresden Files. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like something that would be up my alley, but I cannot get into that series. Uh, but the Codex Alera, I had no problem getting into. So, so I don't know I, uh... why, but... I've heard of the Dresden Files and I've had it recommended, but I've never even tried to read one yet. Um, and I think it's kind of like the wheel of time intimidation factor. Like there's the, there's just so many books and there's so much out there that I, you know, I'm a little scared to like try and commit to a, an almost, you know, a 16 book series at this point. <laughs> but I, well, I, I know a lot of people are, who are huge fans and it is a bestseller. So I know um, it, you know, it's, it is very well received. Uh, and I think this year had the biggest gap uh, between him putting out, because he was putting them out pretty much the, the Dresden Files, almost a, a book a year for a good run, even two books a year uh, in a couple mm -hmm. instances. But then there was a gap between 2015 and 2020. So the, this five-year gap came. And I, I, I just remember my social media had definitely a subset of people who were very excited when the new book came out because they, they weren't used to that long of a, a gap yeah. <laughs> in, in, this, in the series. Yeah, no, I, I I will say, so the reason I haven't gotten into it is not necessarily because it's such a big series. Now, that is part of why it took me so long to try the first one. But I tried the first one, I'm like, oh, this was okay, it's, but it's just generic magic detective. And the people who recommended it to me said, oh, yeah, 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 it was actually meant to be part of a, originally sold as a trilogy, and he was just kind of going to pop them out. And then they, they got so popular, they said, hey, why don't you do more? 
and so he just kept going and there and everyone has said that after the third book is where it really gets good and i'm like like a a greater mythology starts to get layered in and stuff yeah and i was just like i don't have time to read three books before it gets good (laughs) (laughs) i can do that with a tv show but i have a hard time doing that with books right There, there there's a greater time commitment there (laughs) Um, but it's one of those that I kind of have in the back of my head of like, okay, when, you know, when all this magical free time presents itself, uh, (laughs) that's one of the the pieces of media I do want to circle around to. Yeah. Uh, and Brandon, you had a couple, uh, bits of trivia about the series because you know it a little bit better than I do. Yeah. So it, it was interesting. Just one of the bits of trivia that I did see that I thought would be appropriate to mention on, uh, the protagonist podcast. Uh, is that the elemental spirits, uh, the Furies, uh, they were, they actually came about because Jim Butcher watched Big Trouble in Little China and he heard the word being used and he liked it and he used it. And I, I just know that you guys have a rich history and legacy with <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, it's one of our great episodes of this podcast is talking about Big, big Trouble in Little Ti- uh, China. So, uh, so yeah, that definitely does uh, fit in. And Furies is one of those terms that, I mean, it's a little bit like the Lost Legion. Like it gets used so often um, that it's kind of lost its significant to hear, uh, significance to hear that there are Furies in a text because it's, you know, it's such a long uh, history for, for the term uh, in terms of mythology and everything. Yeah, and... Uh... If you if you don't spell it correctly, it comes out furries, which completely <laughs> changes the, the the what the word means. And uh, but I will say that the same people who who enjoy f- furries would probably there, there's probably a good significant lap overlap of the people who like furries and the people who like fur- the furies of Calderon. Just try saying that three times fast. Yeah, when uh, uh, producer Andrew was asking what we were going to be recording tonight, and I texted him, and he said, at first I read that as the furries of, of Calderon, which just <laughs> put a very different image in his head. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? This is this is one of those this is one of those books that is just an enjoyable. It's light. It's lighthearted. So it could be like there are times where I'm like, maybe that's where he was going with some of these things, because in the later books, he introduces additional species that are more animal based and and i'm like maybe maybe he's making the joke to himself because that's (laughs) the kind of thing that jim butcher does he's a very fly by the seat of your pants kind of author um and so he and so i could very much see him making jokes there's a lot of things about this book actually that uh that he explains in like interviews that he never put down in any of the books like uh, there's a villain in the book that is actually a terraforming uh, scout, essentially, that he never in six books never mentions. But as soon as you hear that, you're like, oh, OK, maybe uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> but, you know, that's how Jim Butcher rolls. Right. Well, before we get to the full summary of this book, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes, in which we talk about uh, the media that we've been consuming most recently that we haven't yet addressed in full episodes of the Protagonist podcast. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now 
on to a summary of the Furies of Calderon. And I will just, I, I want to acknowledge um, that we had tried to schedule this recording a little while ago. So I actually finished the audiobook version of Furies of Calderon a little over a month ago. But then before I'd even written the summary, we had to reschedule which is fine. That's the nature of podcasting. I'm not blaming you at all, Brandon. Uh, but oh, well, uh, when it came time for me to write the summary, I was like, ooh, do I remember all the details? So I went and there is a Furies of Calderon uh, fan wiki, which is called codexalera.fandom.com that had a pretty detailed summary that I was able to go and look at to just to remind myself uh, some of the details here. Uh, but it is also still possible I may get uh, a name wrong or something along the way. So feel free to correct me, Brandon, if you spot any mistakes here. Okay. So the story is set in Alera, where people can bond with elemental furies, and depending on their training and natural skill and talent, their their power levels can vary greatly. Amara is a cursor who is about to graduate, and she is a very powerful uh, she's a very very powerful connection with a wind fury. Her final test, which is under the guidance of her teacher Fidelius, is to spy on a rebel legion that may be planning to overthrow the first lord, who's kind of the the leader of this region of the world. Uh, she is captured and she sees Fidelius killed. And when she is being held under the threat of torture, she realizes that the only chain of events that makes sense that would have ended with her here in this situation is if her teacher was actually a traitor. She calls out for him and Fidelius reveals that the attack on him was a ruse. She summons her wind fury and Amara is able to escape, uh, but she is very weak and desperate at this point. Uh, it was very difficult for her to be able to get out of that situation. Now we cut to Tavi who is a young man who has never developed any affinity for a type of fury, which is a bit embarrassing for him as he's now of an age that he should have control of one of those elemental furies. He's a shepherd. Some of his flock have wandered off. He and his uncle Bernard, who uh, can control an earth fury, uh, they go to search for the sheep that have been lost. They discover a secret group of Marat, who are um, kind of an, an outsider group from, uh, you know, diff different from their kingdom. Uh, they had a war with the Marat in the past, but they've kind of had a, a shaky peace for for a while, uh, but the Marat are clearly preparing to attack the kingdom. Bernard is badly wounded uh, when the Marat discover them, but his fury is able to take him home to his village to keep Marat off of Bernard's trail. Tavi draws their attention away and uh, runs, and in, in his flight, Tavi meets up with Amara, and they are able to make their way back to the village safely. At the village, Bernard's sister, Isana, and she's a watercrafter, which watercrafting allows them to have some healing power. She is able to heal Bernard, though he was technically dead for a minute there. Uh, but he, he does get better. He got and, better. Yes. <laughs> and it does drain Isana a lot. Like, this is not something that she probably should be doing, but she does it. Uh, Fidelius and some of those other traitors. So uh, there's the Marat, who are going to be attacking um, Alera, but there's also the traitors within Alera itself. And Fidelius and some of those other traitors um, show up to the village uh, and they don't know that anyone knows about them, but Tavi and Amara, uh, well, Amara in particular recognizes them. And so Tavi, Amara, Bernard, and Asana run off to try and warn the First Lord and other loyal leaders that traitors have aligned with the Marat to overthrow the kingdom. In their flight, Tavi is captured by the Marat. They get separated uh, into kind of some different groups. Tavi's captured by the Marat. Amara and Bernard hide out together, and affection begins to blossom between them. And Isana is captured by this complete and utter jerk. Uh, who's he, He's not a traitor to the First Lord. He's just a jerk and his name is cord <laughs> and he's the worst i hated him every time he was in the book i'm like oh someone someone kill him uh and he has a major axe to ride against asana tavi uh discovers 
that some of the Marat aren't actually down with the whole invade Alara and kill everyone they meet plan. And one of these people who are, is a little more iffy uh, gives Tavi enough information that he can initiate some Marat rituals that will give him a chance to survive if he can best one of the Marat in this test. He and another Marat are dropped into this weird chasm where monsters lurk, but a powerful healing plant is also found. If Tavi can find the plant and return with it first, he will be freed. Uh, and Bernard, uh, now to pick over, there's Bernard and Amara. They were together and hiding out, and they eventually make their way to a military garrison that is going to be the first one that will be attacked by the invading Marat army. Um, but they're able to get there before the Marat do and warn them. Uh, it takes a little while to convince them that the Marat are actually coming, but they do. Isana is eventually <laughs> able to escape from that jerk cord, and she ends up at the same garrison. Uh, Tavi uh, realizes something he did not know at first. The young Marat, who is in the chasm with him, is actually a girl. Uh, and they fight at first, but eventually they're united in their utter terror at the monsters who dwell there, and they team up. The girl, Katai, is wounded, but Tavi heals her with some of the plant that he had managed to get, and they're both pulled up out of the chasm. The Marat attack the garrison, and although Amara, Bernard, and friends hold up fairly well, it's evident that the garrison is going to fall. Some reinforcements do arrive, but that jerk cord is among them, uh, and he tries to kill Isana. She's pretty tough to kill, though, and she wounds Cord badly. Soon, though, more Marat arrive, but instead of attacking the garrison, they attack the invading Marat. Tavi's group of Marat want to call off the entire invasion, and the leader of that clan challenges the leader of the invading clan to combat and wins that battle. So the Marat will retreat. Tavi, Amara, Bernard, and Asana are all all right uh, for now, and they have the favor of the First Lord, though they know that there are traitors in their midst and more war is likely to come. The end of the first novel in this series. Very nice. Like I, if if I wouldn't have known that you you read it a month ago, I would have thought you had it. You had a wiki or something. <laughs> uh, well, that is one of the great things about the internet. If there is a geeky topic that we're going to be covering, I can usually find <laughs> a pretty detailed fan site that's going to have some good trivia and uh, help out with the the summary writing. Um, just uh, to remind uh, remind us of some of those elements. So you, you know, at the beginning, you mentioned how the entire inspiration for this was this kind of bet about combining lost Roman Legion and, and Pokemon. So immediately off, off the, the top, we know there's gonna be some genre blending of, um, uh, you know, historical war situation, and then this fantasy creature element tied in. And how successful do you think this is at kind of blending those two genres into a a cohesive new world that is being built. Well, I will say that, that, so I am, when I read a story, I can forgive a lot about plot holes or character growth issues, as long as they're building a really cool world. And that's what this is. This mm -hmm. is a cool world. Um, there, there is some kind of ridiculous. Well, there's a lot of ridiculous things in there, but it's, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a fun escape world. Right. And yeah. you don't, you don't really know that they are taking like, and like you said, they, they mashed, mashed them up, but the, you don't really know that it's the lost Roman Legion until he kind of, uh, flat out says, this was the lost Ro Roman Legion essentially in a later book. Right. Um, and so, and I don't know if that's because people weren't picking up on it, but I felt that he did a really good job of saying, okay, how would the evolution of uh of the roman legion have happened if if they were transported to a different world instead of just being lost they were in a whole new world uh with some magical powers for and now it, 
it has been eight generations since that had happened. Um, and you know that because uh, there is Gaius Sextus, who is the current uh, first lord, uh, and his son was Gaius Septimus, and uh, they and and Gaius Septimus would would have been old enough for another generation had he not perished in the battle first battle with the Marat in the Calderon Valley, um, and so it's that's what I found really intriguing about this book um, was that Jim Butcher took this and he and he expanded it eight generations to see it, to say what would what would this world be like and then let's throw in some let's some different species of humanoids that they can battle against uh the marad are more feline like um and have different cultures uh and and he does a really good job of uh of using of doing the sci-fi trope with that of of saying let's look at what humans do but in the frame of the other. And so they get, they get a lot of, uh, and not humans, uh, mainly Western culture, right. Uh, in the frame of how would somebody else look at this? And so it's, there's, there's the, the culture clashes from the Marat and it expands on it later on in the, in the books, um, in the other books. So this, this first book is definitely a first book. It does not really it it doesn't explain all that kind of back history at all. It just feels kind of like Roman Roman Legion era, but now fantasy uh, layered in with it. Yes, yes, and so they use a lot of Roman Roman terms. Their swords are gladiuses, and they, you know, they have shield walls, and and they and they fight very much like a Roman Legion. But it's but if you didn't know what that was, you'd just be like, oh, this is kind of a cool fantasy ish world. Uh, almost feels kind of D and D. Yeah, a little bit. And um, like in terms of the magic, and, and you know, there's definitely levels that vary in terms of what the rules of magic are. And in this first one, at least, like you can get a sense that there's a price that is being paid in terms of like physical stamina and energy to the people when they call their furies, and like the the more that they're calling upon them to do, the weaker they feel afterwards. Um, but in terms of like a strict rule structure, it wasn't like, um, you know, uh, name of the wind or anything like that, where you, you get, you know, here or, or some of Brandon Sanderson's where it's like, here's the exact rule. Like you're given a rule book of exactly how the magic is going to work. It's more like they're doing magic and there's kind of a physical price to be paid. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like the people who are doing it kind of know, but it's a little different for everyone. And so, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it plays it fast and loose with those rules. I will tell Which you, which is fine. You, I, I don't, I don't mind that as long as they're kind of like consistent in saying we're doing the hand wavy version of fantasy. <laughs> um, so, be, but because of that, I'll tell you the last couple books get a little, a little weird. Um, do, do they start to like try and explain it more? Or um... yes, yes, and I think I, I, I didn't think about that until just now. It wasn't until they explained, started explaining some more of how this came to be that it's like, oh, well, that's not exactly what i wanted it to be it's the same thing that happened to star wars when we got a prequel trilogy and we found out that darth vader started out as a young whiny kid well, or, like, or that midichlorians are the force you yes know, yeah, it's like oh, that's, that's that, that wasn't my headcanon I, I, I yeah i don't always need that that level of explanation it's uh, i mean well 
a little peek behind the curtain listeners wait about a month and you'll hear some more Brandon's thoughts about star Wars and wrapping up a trilogy (laughs) because I've been thinking about it. So I may save some of that reaction to to that comment for, for our next recording that we'll be doing right after this one. Um, But yeah, sometimes when the world that like, if, if you come to love the world already, you don't always need the foundational concept explained. And it's great if the author has that in their head. And I think that can lead to greater consistency of how the world gets presented. But sometimes when you lay it all out, it kind of review uh, uh, pulls back some of the, like the wonder and that can happen with, with good fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, sometimes things just don't need to be shown the, the movie jaws, you, you don't see the shark. And there were practical reasons for that. But when you didn't see the shark, you were more afraid of the shark. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's not just hand wavy. It's also kind of suspense building and letting you fill in the gaps, which I think in narrative stories, the novels and not not movies, essentially, uh, I mean, maybe sometimes even in movies and TV shows, the more you let a reader fill the gaps in on their own, the more comfortable it is to a reader. Yeah, and I think there's also a level of, you know, when we're talking about these kinds of genres, like sci-fi or fantasy, there's going to be suspension of disbelief, where we just kind of accept the world for what it is, uh, because we want to be in that world and experience the story, or the narrative is compelling us, or we like the characters, whatever reason it is, we're willing to suspend our disbelief and just accept the world. But I, I think when we're given the rules, there are times where that actually makes us start to think about it more deeply and and push against, uh, you know, the, the world that is being set up and find loopholes or, or uh, cracks in, in that system, that when it's all just kind of there, we don't actually do that work. Like we just kind of accept it as the world for what it is. Right, right. Um, so one of the things that you had mentioned in your summary that, uh, I also, speaking of the world, Tavi's not just embarrassed because he, he can't control a fury. He's considered a freak because literally everybody has at least one fury or a little bit of fury craft as they call it, where, uh, to the point where their lights in a lot of situations are controlled by furies and, and basically people just have to ask them to turn the light on and off. And it happens, but since Tavi has no connection to the Furies, he is unable to do that. And uh, and the, and it's when they start explaining more of that that is like, oh, this is just, I, I the lights are great, and they and they lead to some great, uh, like, oh, they're gonna figure this out. That Tavi is Tavi because he can't turn on and off the lights by himself. So, cause he's literally the only one in the entire world. So, I mean, I can see why he's like, okay, let's figure out ways for, for this plot to move forward. But very much like I don't need it explained. Now I'm wondering, you've read the all six series, um, having Tavi as a main character, but then being set apart as someone who is different because they don't have powers it's like an inversion of the chosen one trope but you also have in the back of your mind as someone who reads a lot of fantasy i think like well is he suddenly gonna be like more powerful is it like at a certain point he's gonna develop relationships with all the furies instead of like one family of furies um and you don't have to like spoil if that happens or not but at least in this book you end up with kind of the reverse of the classic like special one has unique powers this is the special one has no powers in the world where everyone has powers that is gonna what uh you know what makes tavi different and he ends up being you know one of the key figures that's able to uh avert the overthrow of the kingdom basically so there is a uh phrase that i have or a subgenre, i i guess i could call it uh that i've stumbled across on reddit 
for fantasy books. Mm-hmm. And they, they call themselves progression fantasy because your main character progresses and gets better and goes through training and things like that. Like in some ways, Harry Potter is progression fantasy right. because he ranks up throughout the books. Um, Furies of Calderon is a progression fantasy where, where Tavi ranks up throughout the books. Um, but you know, it's, it, it, you know, it, I, I actually like this and I've noticed this trope in a lot more fantasy where the chosen one has no powers at the beginning, really, mm-hmm. because I mean, I think about like Steve Rogers in Captain America, right. he, you know, he's the chosen one, but literally at the beginning of his character arc, he has, he has no powers, but because he has no powers, he's forced to view the world differently than everybody else around him. He's weaker than everyone. He has to have that compassion. He knows what's uh he has to think differently he has to be he has to he can't just muscle his way through a problem because he doesn't have the muscle to muscle his way through it and so he is forced to think about things and uh in this book with the challenge with the marat and in multiple series that comes to play with tavi a lot where he has to he thinks differently than everybody else uh because he because he does he can't use the furies to turn on the lights. He has to figure out a, a way to turn on the lights. And uh, there's a section of one of the books where he is studying the romantic arts and it's like siege engines and, and, and ways to lift giant blocks and build buildings without any fury craft. And because there's, there are uh, myths and legends about their original ancestors who didn't have any fury crafting and, and that's where it starts to explain and hit you over the head. This is the lost Roman right, legion people. Right, yeah, the, you know, the, there's a, an origin mythology for this group on this world. Yeah, yeah, and that's and, and so I I I don't know. You've got you've got Captain America who started out as as the weakest of the bunch. You've got Tavi in this. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, but I really thought that was an interesting trope that. I have found that I fall for hook, line, and sinker. Somebody mm-hmm. who has no powers who then becomes the most powerful. Right, and I'm like I'm running through like some of the big ones, and I can think of characters who have no powers, but they don't always like sometimes they remain the most important even though they don't have powers. Like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, like he never, you know, gains like elvish magic or anything like that. I mean, in uh, in, in some aspects, Batman is similar to this because when he is a child, he has no powers and. And he spends, it's, it's a lot of hand wavy, but he spends a lot of time training to get to the point where he's at, um, there. And like I said, I, I fall for these hook, line and sinker. So I, there are a lot that I have sufficiently advanced. Magic is a series. Uh, it's actually a spinoff of another series, but is a similar kind of thing where your main character starts out as the guy who you think is the weakest and he actually becomes really strong um, i literally just picked that one up on audible today to start listening to <laughs> I, I i have listened to every book in that series and the series that it spun off from and it is definitely a progression fantasy so if if you are if you don't have anybody to talk about that with put me on the list <laughs> but just be warned it's another popcorn flick oh i i, I think having entertainment that is just there to like escape into is a completely valid thing to have on hand and and to seek out um and i'm not just talking for 2020 <laughs> i'm talking <laughs> for life in general like like not all uh entertainment that's being produced you know mass produced for mass consumption needs to be like striving to being an artistic statement on the you know the 
the angst of hum- humanity or anything like that. Um, what do you think the balance should be, though? Because I, th- I think there should be a balance. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you get people who just are looking to be entertained, and we get going back to the Romans, the the, uh, the bread and circus attitude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. They uh, or, or the um, Aldous Huxley. Um, uh, oh, what, what's his essay called? Um, oh, it's, it's escaping. But Aldous Huxley wrote a lot about this. Yeah. Um, I, I would bet you that this is going to be the only podcast that talks about the Furies of Calderon and also references Aldous Huxley. Just saying. <laughs> this is why I brought this to you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's possible. I don't I don't know. There's a lot of podcasts out there. I, I don't want to limit it. I, I don't know if you've looked at the the podcast charts. There's there's so much out there. There might be a podcast that's just dedicated to applying Aldous Huxley to popular text. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, maybe, maybe. maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, okay. But but no, I agree that there's a balance. But I think on both ends, like the there's definitely people who you probably know who are like a little too snooty that were like, I only read the great literature. I only read the canon, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then there's people where um, all they do is like drift off into escapism. It's like, maybe you could read something a little more heft <laughs> with a little more heft to it. Uh, and, and I think there's also texts that manage to do both that if you're willing to put in the work and you, you can find great value in things that maybe too often get dismissed as just entertainment. So I, I think there's a balance both in terms of what kind of materials you're going to explore, but also what attitude you're going to take to those materials. Um, too. I think that's, I think that's why I keep coming back to protagonist actually is because you, you do cover both ends of it. You'll, you'll cover deep work, deep philosophical things. And then you'll let me come on and ramble about magic uh, magic everything basically everything that i've talked about has been i think well almost everything has been some sort sort of magic well maybe everything uh so there is i have to run through you've been on probably a dozen times i don't know you've been on a lot so yeah. i guess i have sure it's got a, a range there I, I i'm a i'm a single trick pony joe i i, I like my <laughs> i like my light fare but i i found for a while i was reading a lot of neil gaiman uh, mm-hmm. a lot like, you know, like American gods and some of the heavier stuff that he's written. Cause he, he's written some lighter things too, but I, I found that I couldn't read two of his books back to back. I had to kind of cleanse my palate with a young adult fiction book or something like that to get myself back into the mindset of, of reading the heavier, the heavier stuff again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see, it, to see where where listeners fall in on this. If I, I you know, I, I don't know if that's on the Facebook page or anything. No, I, I think it's really Cause on the one hand, I, I'm also a big advocate of you like what you like, and that's fine. You go consume what you enjoy. Uh, but I also would, you know, on some level advocate for like, you know, mix up the diet a little <laughs> try and try something new uh, that's outside of uh, your kind of go-to genre that, you, that you're always turning to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and if you, if you apply, I think, especially if you're a content creator, I think content creators should try things outside of their genre because then they can bring it back into the concepts back into their genre and cross pollinate and just make mm-hmm. things so much well, better. Well, even like this, this book right here is an example of like cross pollination of like the, the kind of historical fiction that often follows the Lost Legion and then Pokemon. Like those are two very different entertainment realms. There's a lot of entertainment on both. Like Pokemon is a massive franchise and there's so much that's been done with Pokemon. Um, but it, there's also been a lot of stories about the, the Lost Legion. Uh, but, you know, you've got to kind of be familiar enough with both worlds to then say, uh, you know what, I'm actually going to put those together 
in a way that's going to make something new and something different that, yes, you can see where the building blocks are, but it also stands as its own thing at this point. So at what point, at what point do you say that everything has been done? Because uh, if you mash it up, now, if I went and I mashed up uh, Lost Roman Legion and Pokemon, then we would have a completely different story. Mm-hmm. But but then at that point, somebody can read it and say, oh, this is just that. I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, texts or arguments that are made about, like, there's only really seven stories we tell or, you know, the, that that kind of thing. Or the hero's journey and the monomyth, where, like, everything's kind of a variation on, the, on this monomyth. And it gets down into... Well, is is the version that's being told now good? Like, the, does it fulfill uh, the the purpose uh, that you know that the artist is putting it out there for? In terms of like like if it's wanting to give you escapist entertainment, does it do that? If it's wanting to add some commentary about our current society, does it do that? So, uh, something like um, the Hunger Games, you know, comes and becomes this pop culture phenomenon. But you can pretty easily look back at you know, some classic American short stories that most people read in junior high or high school and say, well, that's just kind of mixing the lottery and the most dangerous game. And then you get Hunger Games. But Hunger Games is now layering in so much commentary about entertainment in uh, the 2000s. And um, that it's, yes, you can see those building blocks, but it also is now becoming its own unique thing that is going to become now a building block for someone else. Um, And that's kind of the the evolution that I think happens is people kind of blend these things together that the art, you know, the artist was familiar with and maybe they're consciously or unconsciously drawing from these and they're making something new. And if it's very successful, that is going to become for the next generation of creators, uh, something that they kind of draw upon as an influence that's going to inspire them. But what they do has to be different enough. Or like you said, it gets rejected as just derivative. Um, And when it comes to, like audience expectations, I think it's important that, uh, you know, artists know what audiences are looking for. And that's why we get things like genre classifications at bookstores is if you're in the sci-fi, you know, aisle, you're looking for something in the sci-fi world, you know, that you, you know, you're going to recognize as sci-fi as containing those generic conventions. Uh, But if it, feels like you're just doing the generic conventions of Star Trek, but your book does, isn't set in the Star Wars uni- or Star Trek universe, it might get dismissed. But also then if it's too far afield from the sci-fi genre, uh, the audience is going to say, well, this isn't what I was looking for. And they're going to reject it. So you got to find that sweet spot, which is what something I think Jim Butcher has done well with Furies of Calderon um, of like you know, taking some familiar elements, but crafting something new out of it. See, this is, this is why I bring ridiculous stories to you. Is because I was always like, oh, there, there is something like deeper to talk about this, and I think this is goes to the point that you were making earlier. If you look at a just a entertainment type thing, you can look at it and find more things to talk about, and you can find a deeper meaning in there because, well, you know what, it's it's all it's all mon- monomyth, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, like when you're talking about like the progression character, like that's uh, going back to the um, Campbellian monomyth. Like so often the the protagonists of these stories are going into an unknown world where they don't have the skills, like they don't know that world or understand it. So it's natural, uh, a natural part of the progression is that um, they cross the threshold from what they know into the unknown, and they're going to gain some allies and a fellowship. But along the way, they're also going to be gaining skills as they become more familiar with this previously unknown world until they're able to be a master of that world as well. Um, and sometimes that happens in a single story. Uh, but it, what you're identifying is this kind of sub genre of some fantasy. It sounds like like across multiple books, um, the 
uh, you know, the, the character is going to be like constantly leveling up. And I, I would imagine with the, these kinds of series, you could step back and say, like, it's, does the series as a whole follow some of the Campbellian monomyth? And like, you know, if it's a six book series around book three or four, you know, does our does our hero have kind of their darkest period? Or if it's like a Harry Potter series, is there a reason book five feels so angsty, angsty and dark and Harry Potter feels abandoned? Yeah, it's following like as, as across the seven year arc. <laughs> that's that's the abyss right there. Um, and then he's going to start rising up out of the abyss, uh, you know, and moving forward as, as, as a master. But that's, you know, one of his most transformative. I need to become a leader moments uh, would be right around there in a seven year cycle uh, of the monomyth. It, I mean, yeah, that's and I think that kind of pulls a lot of what this book series is, too, like. I, I, it was described to me one time as a roller coaster, right? Uh, you, you fall, you, you learn your lesson, you, you face a battle and that's like a loop-de-loop. And if you learned your lesson and you won, you're done. If you didn't, you go through another loop-de-loop. <laughs> and, uh, the, the, this book series is just kind of a, kind of a series with six loop-de-loops, right? Uh-huh. Where we, in one giant loop-de-loop, it's, 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 it's a circular, uh, make sure you take a barf bag is all I'm going to say. <laughs> Um, but yeah that's and and that's and that's exactly the same kind of path that this that this the book series takes but also this book individually i mean if you look at it this this book starts with the most like ordinary world of ordinary worlds he's a teenager longing after a girl uh and he's a common uh shepherd like you don't get much more normal world than that in this mm -hmm. setting well, and I want to say in, in talking about why I think this book works, we, we've done uh, quite a bit, I think, on like the the more meta aspect, like how does how does the story come about? What is the author doing? What are they pulling from? And and how does this fit within generic uh, codification and that sort of thing? But I think he also, besides making a really interesting world, um, these characters feel fully formed uh, in this first book and they feel very distinct from each other. And um, some of it, like Fidelius, when I heard the name, I'm like, He's either going to be the best person or he is the traitor because he is named Fidelius. <laughs> like yeah. it's one of those, it can only be one of those two. He can't be some like middle of the road, blah. <laughs> or is he both? Or is he both? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and when you like in that first, it's, it's kind of like the, um, you, you know, the prologue where you're kind of like being introduced to some of the rules of the world with Amara and, you know, the camera's kind of following her. This is going to be her story, but then we jump over to Tavi pretty quick and and realize that this is actually going to be moving between multiple characters. Uh, but, but like Amara felt like, um, you know, someone who was competent, but a little over in over their head, uh, but also desperate to do the right thing. And, uh, and when you see like Fidelius betray her, like you feel the, the hurt that that is, you know, that betrayal is worse than actually being captured and threatened with torture is, uh, the, the sense of betrayal. Cause, cause in just in the audiobook, it was probably five minutes, is it five, 10 minutes for that prologue. I, I can't imagine it was terribly long. Um, but they set up the entire world. They, show they set you up the entire world, but the also weaknesses. they give you the relationship between Amar and Fidelia so much that you feel the betrayal. Yes. Um, like, like that relationship feels earned in the banter that they have together. You can tell this is a teacher and student that have been together for years uh, and that there's mutual respect between the two of them. Uh, and, and so Jim Butcher in crafting this world uh, and presenting these characters, he has a very deft hand in making you feel like, you know, these characters in only, uh, you know, a short number of pages or, uh, you know, a few minutes of an audiobook. Yeah. And uh, you had mentioned that uh, Amara was basically graduating from cursor school. 
uh, which in this world, the cursors, for the most part, are considered to the normal people. They're considered basically mailmen. They run the messages for the First Lord. Uh, but the but they are there's an, there's another aspect where they are spies. They are the spies for the First Lord. And so not all of them actually run messages. Some of them, some, it's like the, in double O or in Mission Impossible, it's the, it's the list of spies, right? Where, where you don't know who's a spy and they're out doing secret things. And some of them are doing this job and some of them are doing that job and you never want that list to get out. And so when Fidelius betrays and, and becomes a traitor, that is just terrible because he knows who they are because he, he trained them. Uh, he was, he was the, he was the guy who brought them in. So he, I mean, he thinks he's saving the empire, but really he's betraying everyone. And these people aren't just, you know, Amara wasn't just like a college kid about to graduate. She, she had some, some career in the military. She, you know, and even it didn't, it doesn't really explain it in the future books. It's just one of those things where in his world building that he's done, uh, she had gained the respect of the first Lord through, something that had happened and she uh and she had that in 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 future books they've got like basically generals who are going through this cursor training um because if the cursors find somebody who's like hey you would be a good spy we'll teach you how to spy and so it's it's not like she's just like naive to the world and but she is a little bit and i think that also helps to to what you were saying very quickly, you get the feeling of these are real and lived in characters because Jim Butcher doesn't feel the need to exposition everything out. Yeah. He he just, he gives you characters that are, that are formed that they have full backstories. He hasn't given them to you, but they're there. And so they guide their actions. And so it does feel very real and very connecting, even though it's in a very ridiculous fantasy setting. Well, and then think about this fantasy setting and how it gets presented to us. Um, I, I was, I'm actually surprised that I'm now realizing that he doesn't do the classic technique that has almost become, um, you know, a, 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 you know, just just a trope that some people dismiss, where it's the fish out of water that gets introduced to the magical world, and then because they don't know anything about the magical world they have to be told everything and therefore the reader gets told everything. The reader like gets the info dump at the same time the protagonist is getting the info dump in this world. Everyone kind of knows what's going on. And so as readers, we just kind of learn as we go, but I never felt lost um, in it. Like he, he managed to introduce this fairly strange mishmashed world uh, in a way that um, left me feeling pretty informed about what was going on. And uh, you know, having a grasp on on this world without getting either um the prologue info dump which is another way that a lot of fantasy books do it we're like okay here's the great mythology of the world and then we now cut eight to, generations uh, ago a yes. lost roman legion appeared in the world of alera and... yeah yeah we don't get that at all uh and but nor do we get like someone has uh fallen through a portal or just discovered they're a wizard and so now someone has to explain to them what you know that that wizards are real harry and uh there's this wizarding school here's all the rules of the wizarding school uh and here's all the breakdown now the reader is caught up and it feels natural because harry's getting informed uh neither of those happen here but i think he does a pretty good job of explaining the world well and i think this goes back to the original bet right because it was can you take a bad concept and turn it into a good book through execution and if jim butcher had executed poorly here 
then we would have been like, oh, this is just another generic fantasy lost Roman legion uh, with magic kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it would have been, oh, there's lots of exposition and it wasn't that exciting and it didn't feel real and it felt weird, but because he executed it so well, it actually ended up being more, more of a, of a quality story, even though legitimately the base concepts are kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but it, it totally works. And I, um, I'm going to be going through my library app to get on the wait list for the second book in the series. Uh, the uh, using the, the Libby library app there, the first book had a number of holds that I had to wait, wait my time before it uh, came through. And the second does as well, but I, I like the world. I do want to hear what happens next. And I, I like these characters like uh, Bernard and Amara. I like when I first met Amara and I first met Bernard, there's nothing that made me think, I think those two would make a good couple. But as soon as they became a couple, I'm like, you know what? They're right for each other. <laughs> <laughs> they just fit. They yeah. just fit. And, uh, you know, Bernard feels like he is this kind of, uh, you know, a little bit older. He had a family and we just know there's some tragic backstory where his his wife and kids uh, were, were lost. Uh, but he's still kind of like this. Everyone who meets him just kind of has an innate respect. Like immediately you can tell. This guy knows what's going on and he's competent. <laughs> like he has this air of competency, I think about him that uh, is very recognizable and um, he's not like a superhero, but he's just good at what he does. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. And, and that's what, and I think this is the dream for all of us for leaders is to have, is to have that one person to be in charge who everyone just trusts and everyone's like, you're the guy, you know what you're doing. We'll trust you. And, and he's not power hungry. He doesn't like abuse the power at all or, or uh, he he's not self-aggrandizing at all. Him. Yeah. It's just, everyone's going to like, okay, what, what, you know, can, can you lead us right now, please? <laughs> we need you. And, and he has enough of, uh, enough of a sense of duty that he's like, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I can do that. And so I must do that. Mm-hmm. And, and similarly with Tavi, like we mentioned, he's, he's kind of like the opposite of the chosen one, at least in this first book. And you can sense with the way some people whisper out and he's kind of has a strange origin where like, you're not really, he, he calls Bernard, his uncle and um, Isana's aunt, but there's no real acknowledgement of his actual parents at any point, which is always like a red hair, you know, a red flag. I mean, uh, for a reader of a fantasy novel, um, that, that's something more maybe coming, but like he, he is still, um, clever and he's definitely in over his head but it's kind of like through wit not through strength or even guile it's uh you know just kind of like uh well and then also having like just enough help always like it's not i'm gonna do this all by myself it's like no there's just enough help around him that he can take advantage of and and tweak the situations to to make it through and and utilize whatever resources he has at hand mm -hmm. and and to be honest that's kind of what bernard does his uncle does he's it, this is another one of those world features where the more you get to know Tavi, the more you see influences from his aunt and uncle in him and, and things that was like, Oh yeah, he definitely would have picked that up being the, the nephew of a man like Bernard. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I, I, I think that's one of those things that, that and once again, execution lived in world. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought because I was uh -huh. thinking about how how well that all tied together. But so I didn't tie mine together. I apologize, but <laughs> it did tie together. Yeah, um, 
if you were going to try and like describe Amara's key character traits, what what makes Amara kind of interesting? Like like we said, that's kind of our first introduction to this world is is through Amara, and we see her do some pretty impressive stuff, and um, she's clearly like driven to do the right thing, and she has no interest in being a traitor at all. But you know, beyond those kinds of of character beats, you know, of what we see happen to her, what what do you think kind of defines her as a character? That's a good. That's a hmm, that that's a difficult question to answer because she she's very much there to move the plot along. Like we need somebody connected to the first lord, so so she's there. But I I also think I mean we've talked a lot about duty. There I mean it's a inspired by the Roman legion. There's going to be a lot about duty there. Um, but I think actually tying her into uh, what I said about Tavi earlier, she is a problem solver. She is somebody they they mentioned, you know, how not strong she is several times. And uh, in the very, in that prologue, she gets captured and you get the sense of she's not powerful. She's not somebody that you would look at and be all like, I need to watch out for her. But because of her wits, she gets that. And so I think, I think part of what makes her interesting is you know, the things that you had, you had mentioned that we, you know, she, it is what it is, but she looks, she looks at things differently as well mm-hmm. than most of the other world. And she's a problem solver, just like Tavi. She solves problems differently. But, but she also sees different problems because of her experience. Like she is very much driven by the big picture. Whereas Tavi and Bernard are to, to a certain degree, kind of like, how am I going to survive this day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and how can I, uh, not just me, but like, how can me and everyone else around us survive this day? She is the one that sees like the big political implications of everything that's going on. If and... I don't survive this day, that's fine. But this needs to happen first. Yes, exactly. Where like uh, for the good of the entire realm, this information has to get to this person. Here are the impediments to that. How can I overcome those? Whereas Tavi and Bernard are like, well, Tavi ends up because of where he's at. Like, how am I like just me going to survive for now? And he ends up, you know, influencing the the end of the battle um, almost as a side effect of trying to to live uh but bernard is like how can i save as many people around me so they all have i think different motivations and uh even though that ends up aligning pretty well we're like okay we're all gonna end up at this garrison trying to you know do our best here uh the the reason that they end up there is very different and and i think they're consistently shown to be having that different worldview in terms of what decisions they're going to make and also what they view as like what has to happen next uh like amara and bernard we said they kind of make a you know, cute t- couple with it once they get together but they still have different things that they think need to be done right now well and i think that goes towards back or back to the conversation about execution they all end up at the same place at the end where they we've split the party in the middle of the book and it's they're all over the place and yet they all end up in the exact same courtyard at the very end of the book. <laughs> and it, it, if you had not stayed true to the motivations for each of these characters, you would have been all like, well, it wasn't that convenient. But because legitimately there was a reason for each of them to head back there because of their motivations. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this totally would have happened. Right. And I can definitely think of some books where it's like everyone ends up and it's at the same place. And it's just kind of because that's where the story needed them to be. Uh, but like you're, like you're saying, there is uh, individualized reasoning that leads to them uh, ending up where where they're all together again. Right. Right. And uh, 
I think I, I think the one that that got the closest to well that was convenient was with Tavi, but when he just shows up, but like they well it kind of becomes like a you know Han Solo flying in at the end of of Star Wars, uh, you know, <laughs> like, like okay he's here to kind of end a little Deus Ex Machina to end this battle that they were gonna, we'd set up the world enough that they were going to lose unless this some some other force helped to deal with the, uh, oh, I've suddenly forgotten, the Marat. Um, but in Tavi's story, they had given, uh, is it Daroga? Is that the name of the? Yeah, Daroga is the chief. The, the chief that's going to help Tavi and help end this battle. They'd given Daroga his own motivation. Like he, yeah. he didn't want it. He thought this was an unjust course of action that was dishonorable, uh, that they were aligning with these traitors to try and overthrow uh, um, Alera in this way. And so Daroga had his own reason. Like we didn't really touch on him in the, in the summary, but I, you've got to kind of like shift from Tavi to Daroga to make that finale, yeah. you know, work. Yeah. Well, and you know, based on this, based on what you've just said, and I, I think this goes to why we, this tie, this, this ties things together and why it makes so much sense now that it was that this book, you get it. You, you don't need all that exposition. Because every character has a has a code, has their motivations that they're following, and they're very consistent. And so once you understand the character, you don't have to be told why they went over there because you get it. You're like, oh, Daroga is trying to save Tavi because he has a code. And we don't necessarily know what that code is, but... It, this is this is ringing true to all the other things that he has done. So it's very consistent, and so I think that might be part of what his what helps you to understand the story without all the extra exposition. And just one more time, I do want to recognize that in terms of consistency, I cannot remember a character I've encountered recently that I've hated more immediately than Cord <laughs> and more consistently throughout a novel, where I just wanted bad things to happen to this character because he just dripped with like everything he said and did was just like anger inducing to me. Uh, but it was consistent. Uh, and he had his worldview. Like you get, you understand his motivation. You do not respect his motivation. Uh, but he consistently does what he does for, for reasons that yet you can understand, even if you, you don't respect them at all. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And boy, Jim butcher does not shy away from sensitive topics and uses cord as a foil from a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, well, and, okay. So, uh, in terms of like sensitive topics, there's like acknowledgement uh, that Cord is going to do bad things to the women that he captures, uh, but it never becomes like explicit uh, at all. But like you know exactly the things that Cord has done in the past, and it makes you want to see him killed so so much, <laughs> so much more. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I okay. So like I, I mean, I know he's the bad guy, but I'm glad that I'm not the only one that just could not suffer him anymore. Like just, yeah. just do, yeah. But also, he's not the big bad. Like he's the side character. Like he's, it almost becomes like the side story of Isana and Cord and Isana, um, completely besting Cord multiple times. Which, uh, al which almost made me more angry at Cord because it's like there are serious things going on. You need to just stop. Yes, like he becomes. This is obsessed stupid because uh, Isana escapes and bests him uh, when he comes like at the final battle like he still wants revenge on isana and it's like your world is crumbling around you <laughs> like and he's just is such narrow has such narrow focus that all he sees is his anger and his like perceived superiority about isana and the need to assert that superiority over her uh becomes his only driving 
uh, motivation, and he does not care at all that Marat are attacking and that his his country is about to be at war. And boy, is it consistent. Like it, it's so selfish, and I think that's another thing that Jim Butcher is trying to trying to show. Like mm, if 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 you see any of your own traits in court, it's because you're selfish and you don't care about <laughs> anyone around you. You are the worst if you see yourself in court. <laughs> Well, Brandon, thank you so much for suggesting this book. I've really enjoyed uh, both reading it and discussing it with you. Do you have any final thoughts about Furies of Cal- Calderon? Or is it Calderon or Calderon? I can't remember. I, I think I think it's Calderon. Uh, okay. But I mean, if, if it's a written piece of text, unless Jim a, Butcher yeah. says otherwise, you, you, <laughs> yeah. I think you're good. All right. um, is it GIF or is it JIF? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but not so in the GIF I, camp on that. But <laughs> I've heard from people who disagree. <laughs> So with it, with this book, uh, I, I've said a lot about how it's just kind of a silly book, but it's also there, there are a lot of lessons and I, I mentioned it briefly, but I feel like all good sci-fi and fantasy teaches a moral story, whether, whether it's a, a straight up, like, here's the moral for the day. Or it's a parable, or, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, if, whether it's cord is bad and you should not be like him. Or it's or it's something or it's just something that you might apply and attribute in your life. Like maybe I should be more like Tavi and uh, not try to brute force my way through everything. I, I think I think that this has a lot of lessons to learn hidden underneath a ridiculous premise and concept with good execution. Um, and I, I think that if you and I think that nearly any story out there. There is something you can gather from it, whether the author intended it or not. There is something that that we can gather from all of this media that we have. So, and it and it takes a book like this to point that out to me. That yes, yes, this is not this is not the great literature, but it is, but it is it is educational, informative, and fun. At the end yeah, of the day, it has to be fun, right? Uh, and, and sometimes that's what you're looking for is kind of like, a, a good escape book. And, uh, if you're, you want to put in the work to think a little bit more, uh, whether it's about some of the meta stuff that we were talking about or about the character motivations we were getting into at the end, you can pull more out, but it also could just be good to have a book that you grab at your bedside to read for 20 minutes before you go to sleep or, uh, an audio book that you listen to while you do the dishes that you just kind of want to go back into that world for a little while. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 57, when we talked about Big Trouble in Little China, or episode number 274, when we talked about Pokemon. Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com, or also Twitter. You can follow at Jadorowski, or our producer Andrew is at Isminute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Brandon, is there anything you would like to plug? Yeah, my show that I have, that I sure hope by the time this is released, is back on a regular basis uh it's called fandom and we are a celebration of pop culture and fun things we t- we we do a lot of what we did here and take a completely ridiculous concept and story and talk about it in a much more deep way than most people ever ever want to however it's not unless we have a guest on like joe that we get the really deep alex Hux- huxley uh references aldous Hux- huxley 
I can talk. It's a podcast. It's it's not that important, but yeah. You can find my show over at fandompodcast.com. We very much enjoy uh, having guests over on here from the Fandom Podcast, and we've um, everyone involved with the Protagonist Podcast have been on over at the Fandom Podcast as well. Uh, so we do support your show and would invite our listeners to go check it out. Uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Farewell. week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're just i'm gonna give them a fresh read on that